All right. Welcome everybody to the very first episode of the pediatric SLP edition of the resource roadmap show. This is something brand new we're doing here at Therapy Insights. I think we're all feeling a little nervous and a little excited for it because it's something brand new for us. It's the result of years of feedback that we've gotten from members um, requesting that we offer more resources and information on how to use our materials. And so that's what this show is all about. Um, so for most of you listening or watching, you know that we release new content into our library every month and members vote on what we create next. And so on the first of every month, we're going to drop a new episode into YouTube or um, via podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. So you can catch it on any of those places. And we're going to be talking about all of the new releases. And then we'll also be talking about a case study. And that'll give us a chance to talk about different clinical opinions, perspectives, ideas, and also pulling in resources from the library, uh, from the archives. So um, if you are subscribed to the Access Pass and you have the printables feature included, you'll have instant access to all of the resources that we're talking about today, as well as hundreds more that are inside of the library. Um, and if you're not a member, you can sign up anytime at therapyinsights.com. We also offer ASHA CEU credit for watching or listening to these shows. And so to get those credits, you just go to our website. You need to have the CEU feature included in your Access Pass membership. Um, and then you find this episode. This is Pediatric SLP Edition, episode number one. And you'll just answer a couple of questions and get your certificate. Um, so I'm your host for today and today only. My name is Megan Berg. I'm the founder of Therapy Insights. I'm a speech pathologist located in Western Montana. I spend most of my time um, running Therapy Insights, but I also work PRN at a hospital a couple of days a week right now. And I'm very excited to introduce you to the pediatric SLP team of Therapy Insights. Um, these are the people in the trenches doing the work with all of the experience with pediatric um, speech pathology, which I have very minimal experience. I, I survived one year as a school SLP outside of Fort Collins. Um, so yeah, excited for you guys to meet these three lovely women. And I'm going to start with Bailey Womack, who will be your host going forward. And Bailey is, I think, located in her heart. She's located in Nashville, but physically right now she's located in Austin. <laughs> And she has a new baby, so she's navigating new motherhood. And I know she also has plans developing to start um, an outdoor preschool, which I think will, will be really cool. So Bailey, tell us a little bit more. Anything else you want us to know about your SLP life or otherwise? Yes. Thank you, Megan. Um, yeah, as she said, uh, my husband and I just had a baby last year, so that's been awesome and cool being on this side of it, kind of like as an SLP, but a parent. Um, and yes, the outdoor preschool, we are developing that. And I'm trying to kind of tie in speech pathology with that um, and make it um, all inclusive um, for anybody to come. Uh, and yeah, I'm just enjoying new motherhood and a, a new city. Austin's very similar to Nashville, which is great. Um, but yeah, and then I also um, was in outpatient clinic doing feeding, mostly feeding therapy and speech and language therapy. Um, and I'm trying to kind of dive into private clients, um, hopefully soon. So that's kind of where I am with my job. Um, and all the work I do at Therapy Insights is awesome. So thank you, Megan. Uh, thank you. And then we have Tasanya Sibro-Caldron, and she is located in Brooklyn, and she is a mom. She is a foster mom. She is a P working on her PhD. You recently finished your clinical science degree, is that correct? Clinical science doctorate. <laughs> clinical science doctorate. Thank you. So every time I talk to you, I'm just like in <laughs> awe of everything you're accomplishing. But yeah, tell us anything else you want everybody to know about you. Um, so I have, I can't believe I'm saying it, but over 15 years of, uh, experience as a licensed SLP, I can't believe it's 15 years already. Um, and I am currently the director of pediatric rehab at a facility in New York. Uh, I enjoy international and domestic pro bono work. There's a lot of children and adults locally who, uh, don't have access to services for various reasons. So it's one of the highlights of what I do. Uh, and I have a private practice that I, um, I am able to service people across the lifespan. 
Great, thank you. And then we also have Heidi Miller, who is located in Virginia. She is a mom of a three-year-old and stays very, very busy. We were just talking about a full month of high acuity, high volume patients at the facility where she works. So Heidi, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I, out of college, I actually was a special education teacher. So I sort of started there, did a lot of work with au the autism population through schools. Um, and then, you know, I'm always up for new challenges. So went back to school um, after I was married and everything and got my speech pathology degree. So I've been a speech therapist exclusively now for about five years. And I've kind of worked in a variety of settings from the school's to outpatient, now I'm inpatient, um, and all with pediatrics. So um, I, yeah, that's what I, right now I work in a NICU as well. So I'm doing a lot of babies here. So, and then I got involved with Therapy Insights a few years ago because I really, um, I think a lot of resources and education available in our field is not very responsive to the needs of clinicians or to multiple, um, multiple types of people or practice areas. So I think this is a really exciting to kind of be able to talk through things because I also know some of the resources I work on don't always, in my brain are one way, but when you talk about it out loud, it makes more sense to me. So this will be awesome, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited to hear both of you just talk about how you would use the resources. And every time I hear any of the writers talk about that. I'm always like, I never would have thought to use it that way, or that's a different approach that just hadn't come to mind. So um, we do want to verbalize our disclosure since we are offering this for ASHA CEUs. So everybody here is being paid by Therapy Insights to present this show. And we are talking about Therapy Insights products. Um, and with that, we're going to dive in. We have a great lineup of resources from the cycles approach to social skills to disfluency strategies in the classroom. So what I'm going to do is pull up the resources on the screen. I know if you're um, listening on a podcast, you're not going to be able to see this, but you can always go back and find it on YouTube or find it on our website. Each little video clip will also be on each resource page on our website so you can find it that way um, and we'll do our best to describe what we're seeing um, if needed so okay so the first resource we have up is um, wh question flashcards and i will pass it off to tasanya who wrote this resource okay so um when writing resources, I try to create something that can be used to target multiple goals if possible. And this is one of those resources that um, can be used for targeting both receptive and expressive language goal areas. So uh, the way in which I would use this is um, if I have, for example, a child who's working on a receptive goals, I might um, have them work on pointing first. So I might present, first of all, I cut this out and I would um, fold it so that the picture's on the front and the word is in the back. Uh, and then I would present the card and I'd ask the child to point to uh, whatever I'm asking. So for the first one, for example, I'd say who is eating or who's eating. And I'd, um, I'd look for a response where the child would point to the figure of the man in the image. Um, and then sometimes you might have to give hand over hand assistance depending on the child's functional level. So um, it might be where you, you have to hold a child's hand and have them point, use your finger um, if this is the case, to point to the dad in the image. Uh, same thing for something like who is sleeping. If you were working on an expressive, um, expressive goal, you could have your, um, you can have the little one uh, voice this or uh, verbally express this. They could say um, the man is eating. They can say dad is eating. Uh, you can have them just say single word utterances. You could work on the length of utterance with this. So this is what I mean by um, using the resources for various uh, various goal areas. If we turn, can we turn to the, another one or this is the only one that we have? This is the only one. Okay. 
Okay, that's fine. That's fine. You could also address um, if you're working on pronouns with this, you can have them work on he and she. Uh, but the point is that um, I would use it in that manner. So I would begin by um, having them use one word utterances if I was working on an expressive goal. And of course, you're also working on them comprehending uh, WH questions as well with this with this resource. And just to chime in, if, if that's okay, I don't want to interrupt Kasanya. Sure. Um, I was kind of thinking we're always like looking for ways to use the resources differently. So like um, even like laminating them and hiding them in like a sensory bin or putting them in eggs or something is like a scavenger hunt, I guess, to just kind of make it more engaging for them too, if, especially if it's a, a younger child, um, just something to think about. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I love to laminate these, um, the resources, uh, but you can also work on inference <clears throat> with this as well. So like with the why question, if you're asking why is he crying, uh, of course we can say because he fell down, but we can also have, we can work on, we can infer that he's, he's crying because it hurts. So we can also uh, take these resources to that level and work on other areas as well. I really like um, how our designer, Megan, like how the pictures, like that's one of my biggest frustrations with a lot of materials for pediatrics is they're not real picture, they're cartoons or they're um, very like flat almost. There's not a lot else, going. you know, it's a picture of a kid sitting at the beach and it's a cartoon stick figure. So I think that that's something I really like about how these cards turned out from the design end is that they're more realistic. And there's like you're saying, there's more you could talk about from each picture. It's not just a closed set of one answer is correct, or there's only one way to use them, so. Right, and the pictures can actually help you teach the concept of who, what, where, why. Mm -hmm. So like for the who picture, who is reading, for example. Uh, so I would start as an SLP, if, if the child I was working with didn't understand what who meant, I may start by pointing out and teaching it first. So I may say, this is a teacher. This is a student. These are the students. This boy, you know, there's so much you can do with language. This boy, uh, there's a boy in a red shirt. There's a girl in a pink shirt. There's so much you can do. But the point is that I might say, um, this is the teacher. Um, there are three girls. There are two boys. Who is reading? You know, I might start from there to build off of who. Or I might just say right out, depending on the child's functional level, I might say, the teacher is reading to the students and I will say, who is reading? You know, so it depends on the child's needs and their functional level. You can, you can actually teach the concept of it as well with these cards rather than just practicing uh, understanding and use of it. Great, thank you. Okay, let's move on to the second new release for the month. And this is all about the cycles approach for speech sound disorders. And Heidi wrote this piece. Yeah, so um, I got this idea. Uh, I remember like in grad school, a few, you know, cycles approach was one of the more researched ones. It felt like it had a little bit more of a formula to it versus some of the approaches or research-based, uh, evidence-based practice, it does still feel a little bit vague. So I was trying to incorporate, um, making this just an easy way. It would just be something you could just print out and fill out for any kid, or, you know, you could start to get, you know, a file folder of like what you would do if the kid had, you know, the G folder for the G sound or whatever. So you could really build this up or build it out. Or the other hope is that by using it frequently, you don't actually have to sit down and maybe plan it out as much. You kind of get to the point where you're used to using this format. And so you can kind of operate more um, on the fly with it uh, as well. Thinking I do work with a lot of um, graduate students that work with me. And so a lot of times you I tried to, I really appreciate how the team came together because we were able to make it functional, but easy to use so that for those um, younger clinicians, you really can just kind of plug this in and go to work with it. Or you could use it as a teaching tool if you were working with a graduate student or in a um, graduate program, I guess, as well. So um, it kind of outlines the dosage here because Per research, this is kind of what they outline. We want you to target one sound at a time. These are, it gives you some ideas for like how long a cycle lasts or how long the sessions can last. Um, 
I tried to touch on too, like this works in multiple settings or how could you modify it to work? You know, if you're a school therapist, you don't have a 45 to 60 minute session to sit down with somebody and do every part of this. But if you saw them every day, could you cycle through it that way? So that's another way to think of it. Um, it goes through kind of what kiddos on your caseload would be good fits for it. They have a lot of errors um, and it's not all just focused on one speech sound. It seems like there is a, the overlying phon phonological issues as well, not just maybe like a motor based um, issue. Uh, some, the data, it kind of helped me dive into the data. It doesn't kind of a mixed bag on whether apraxia works with this or not. But again, it doesn't mean you can or shouldn't use it. It's just saying like trying to give you a place in this resource to see what the newest research is saying. Um, and again, it points out not a good approach to be using if the child has like a craniofacial anomaly where you're kind of asking them to do something they're physically incapable of. So this wouldn't maybe be a fit for that. Um, and I think the first page here, like that's showing is, it's just kind of a catch all of all the things that I know you should know off the top of your head, but we can, I mean, we see so many kids and so many, um, such a diverse caseload, no matter your setting. So it kind of helps to have it all in one little place that you can just reference there on the first page with all the um, language and talks through what sounds to start with and what you should expect. And then as you flip to the next pages, you're seeing like you can fill in the words that you want to target in a given session, um, which you first start with reviewing the words you did the time before, if that's applicable. If not, you would skip that part. Um, then you pick your phonological process for the week and kind of pick some words. That way this resource can kind of just be sitting on your clipboard beside you or wherever you are. Or if you wanted to, you could plan this and then make appropriate flashcards or picture cards, depending on if the child is literate or not and can read. Um, and again, it talks, it reminds you during the next phase and it gives you the time for five minutes. The child doesn't have to be just staring at you saying these words, you're kind of playing and doing something else and they're just listening to you say them. Um, then it goes into the 10 minutes of production via play. So then you're helping the child actually practice um, five of the words that you're working on. So we have another sheet um, that has the flashcards you can make for them. And again, be flexible, some kids, it's not gonna be helpful to have the word written as well. Um, it's just maybe a picture or they could make a picture. You know, you can make it pretty interactive if you have a kid that needs um, something else to be doing. It's like, hey, let's make the flashcards together. And then there are words and then you can take them home or do whatever. Uh, so that's kind of another level they could add. And then um, kind of having that direct drill practice phase as part of this approach. So just saying that, the more attempts, the better. And you try to slowly through more freak for higher through the higher frequency, you get closer and closer to the target sound. And then tells you part six, you go back up to part two and do that again. Um, and then have kind of a walk away um, homework or home practice, which could be the flashcards that you made, or if you had another list of words to give to parents. Um, so yeah, I think I just, this resource is meant to kind of make a vague, it's not vague, but a big, a big evidence-based practice in articulation and phonology down to something you can just grab and go and use as you need and kind of keep in your library as um, a way to target these kids with multiple errors. So yeah. <laughs> Heidi, this is awesome. It's sorry, Megan, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I feel like there was a time recently when I was working in outpatient where I was getting this wave of kids with phonological or speech sound disorders. And um, the evaluating clinician would say, oh, I think the cycles approach would be appropriate for this child. And I don't know about you all, but I did not receive adequate training in cycles approach. I, I needed some guidance to know how to implement it. And I wish I had this at the time. And I always make um, binders for kids with um, that use the cycles approach. And just like having this in the front, like you said, in a binder for me to kind of just like reference when we start the session, because I would have the child bring the binder back and forth, like from home to therapy. So I feel like this would have been super helpful. So I just think this is very well laid out. It's very clear. So it's, it's great. Yeah. I love that. If you had never done the cycles approach, you could 
grab this resource and figure it out. Or if you've done it a bunch of times and you feel comfortable with it, it's still a nice way to organize what you're doing. All right, moving on to resource number three. This is all about SLP and OT feeding collaboration. Tasanya, tell us about this resource. Um, so the reason why I thought about this one is because uh, in a setting that I work in, when it comes to feeding therapy, it's really helpful to have that collaborative approach between OT and SLP, uh, especially when you want to work from like a holistic standpoint to try to help um, to try to help the patients make uh, faster or more uh, or greater levels of progress. Uh, however, the thing is that a lot of clinicians don't know how to collaborate or where to start with collaborating. So it was just like just a quick list of things that you can um, you can do to collaborate. And um, it can be used by junior staff, it can be used by interns or by uh, just clinicians who don't know where to start. And I also like that, uh, I like to, to have resources that families can use to advocate. So um, sometimes families want a guideline to know how can, what steps would the clinicians do? What should I look out for? How can I help um, guide uh, my uh, child's therapist to, um, with intervention for them. So um, yeah, it's just basically a checklist and um, you can also use it, um, uh, maybe start with one and, and use it for goal building. So on the first few days of the session, you'll work on um, doing the first three on the list. Um, you know, it's just, there's a lot of flexibility you can do, you can use with this, with this specific resource. Yeah. And I, I just thought of a question, sorry, off the cuff question for you all, um, because you mentioned this is a resource that could help parents guide therapists. And I saw something the other day that was basically posing the question of, do parents ever come to you with resources or papers that they've read, like peer reviewed journal papers? Um, or anything where they're trying to give you feedback on the evidence base or the approach that should be used and how, what do you do with that? How do you handle it? Uh, well, yeah, that does happen. Um, sometimes they'll come either from someone else's experience. They'll say, well, my, my friends, sons, therapists tried this with them, or, you know, I saw this on social media and, um, <laughs> depending on what it is, I will, um, uh, I'll be open to incorporating it if it's if it's functionally appropriate, if it's safe, uh, if it's something that's not really evidence based. I might explain that, uh, or if it's something that I think would um, compromise their progress. I, I would. I'm pretty open with uh, the patients and the family I work with. I I just tell them that um, you know it's not something that I think would be feasible at the time, and I explain why. But it does happen sometimes, and I, I think it's always coming from a good place, at least in the experience I've had. It's never been like, you know, with malintent. Um, unlike some of the nurses, I think some of the nurses get, you know, I was a nurse before, and this is how it's a little bit, it comes off differently. I think when they approach us with it, it's just like, you know, just trying to get those, uh, those goals achieved faster and, and better. I think feeding therapy in particular in the pediatric world is um, ripe for social media, like exploitation of like parent fear and parent stress. And mm -hmm. I would say it's kind of like you said to Sonia, like it's one of my least favorite, you know, it's that area and our field, I feel like are really, it's easy to get off track as a new clinician or as a parent Googling like, my kid's disorder or syndrome and you kind of get into these really niche things. And then at the end of the day, the evidence-based practice is just whoever has the best website or you get a mm -hmm. certification that you paid however much for. So um, I think that resources like this that we create are helpful to say like, this is accessible to anybody. And like you're saying, we're responding to the child as well, but um, I feel like what your question, Megan, it's kind of fun. Yes, I, I would say mostly I'm getting stuff. Parents are saying, well, I read on social media or this mommy blogger or this mommy Instagram account told me I needed to be on 
organic formula. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? And I'm like, that is way outside of my realm, but you know, let's try to coach and teach them as well. Like how to critically analyze maybe all the input they're getting about pediatric feeding when they open up Pandora's box of social media. (laughs) Yeah. And it happens a lot with feeding, like you said, feeding, swallowing, and with anything that pertains to children who are uh, diagnosed with ASD. We get a lot with those um, those areas. But you know what the thing is? Uh, the reason why I don't try to, the reason why I try to be cautious in the way that I approach it with the families is because, um, like you mentioned, Heidi, like when it comes to determining what's evidence-based out there, it's a little biased sometimes. And I think within our field, it's a relatively new field still, mm-hmm. um, as far as like how long it's been in existence. And we just don't have that much research. We don't have a lot of researchers. And we tend to dismiss a lot of things because we say it's not evidence-based. Um, so I just try to be cautious in the way I approach it. But I do agree with you. Um, that it helps a lot to help them with like problem solving and like, you know, just being more critical of it and helping them to understand how it could potentially negatively have negative impact on their children versus the positive impacts that they're they're actually seeking. Yeah, I think you're both right that, especially with feeding and swallowing and autism, those are areas where families are very vulnerable and SLPs are very vulnerable right now. Um, You can pay thousands of dollars for certifications and there's a lot of silver bullet solutions being offered. And I think like what Desanya is saying, the field is very young, the evidence base is very young. Like we're just babies as far as the profession goes. And so the the field is ripe with a lot of um, um, for-profit companies or individuals trying to take advantage of that situation. So I think it's important to think critically as an SLP and then like you guys are saying, help families do that as well. Mm-hmm. Heidi and Tasanya, just to add quickly, um, do you find that when, when parents do come to you, like, oh, I saw this on social media, like is it more argumentative or are they like, res- like receptive to what you're saying? I mean, I'm, I'm glad that they bring it to you all and, and ask those questions rather than just like kind of blindly believing whatever they see on social media. So do you find that they listen to you and they're receptive for the most part? Um, I, I feel like they're receptive to it. I feel like when they're coming, they're just really eager to get something that quote unquote works. You know, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to have their child many times fit into a bracket of what society calls normal. So they're just trying to seek something that uh, that society has told them will help their child to reach these levels that that they want many times for them to fit into. And oftentimes when they do approach me, it's it's from a, a good it's from a good place, and they're 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 very receptive to the feedback. Yeah, I think most of the time it's a it's it's asked as a question: Have you ever heard of this, or could we try it? And so you can sort of answer that and say, I mean, unless it's dangerous, obviously, you know, let's try it or let's, again, teaching those skills to say like, hey, you might read something different next week or hear something different from another um, source, but here's how, yeah, you could think through, does this work? Kind of going back to the strategies we know, especially with feeding, like, is it improving their tolerance or is it improving their um, safety with it? You know, so kind of using it to empower the parents and caregivers and say, I appreciate your initiative to like go out and find this. Like I had never seen that. Um, And then kind of working backwards that way. But yeah, it's never really argue everyone. I don't want to say it's never been argumentative, but um, that's not generally how it's (laughs) feels. Yeah, I'll tell you when it becomes a little bit more difficult for me is like if I do, if I'm doing like an international um, event and there's just really limited resources. And, um, you know, in those situations, sometimes, you you know, it it becomes a little bit more difficult because you kind of, I don't know, you kind of have to work with what they have and adapt it to what you know as evidence. I don't know how to explain it, but those are the only situations where I could think about where, you know, there might be, the response might not be mm-hmm. as kind from the families. And it's really because the resources are just not there. 
and mm -hmm. what you're bringing is not something that they're always going to have available. Yeah, makes sense. Thanks for answering my off-the-cuff question. <laughs> we'll move on to the fourth resource that we have released into the library this month, and this is written by Heidi, and it's called Self-Advocacy Statements, Social Skills Worksheet for Neurodiverse Teens. Um, so we've been getting a lot of feedback, it seemed like, for like more stuff for older kids and teens and you know, at that point, you're assuming they're verbal on some level based on the feedback we've gotten for the, the you know, what do we do with these kids? How do we um, get to a point where we're doing something super functional, but also um, that's responsive to this new, I don't want to call it a new neurodiversity movement, but I think you all know it, you know, that's kind of a trending um, theme in our field is like, we shouldn't be teaching kids social skills that meet the criteria for one culture or one idea of what is the right way to communicate. So that's kind of where the seeds of this um, activity activity yeah, came from. Um, so I like things to be organized. So I kind of sort of like the WH questions. I just started there. Like, what are questions we could, um, how, how would you know this is a good resource to use for someone on your caseload? Um, so definitely more of one for our verbal friends, people that are, you know, kids that are chatting and talking. Um, and then, you know, it's important in, I think, in our field to teach the reasoning behind what we're doing. We're not asking them to say, okay, now we need to master self-advocacy -advoc statements. It's like, let's teach them what that is and what that means, because maybe they'll intuitively or independently generalize that to some other part of their life or interaction that we're not part of. Um, so kind of thinking it, the what is teaching them what it is, um, when to use it. I think that's a big piece kind of moving away from like, you're either interacting correctly or incorrectly with a typical neurotypical person saying, this is fine. I mean, I could use these as well. And I'm not a neurodiverse teen, you know, like I feel misunderstood or I'm having trouble communicating my point. These would be a good strategy to use to maybe get through to my communication partner. Um, where, anytime, any, anywhere, anytime. Like I said, I could use more of them probably in my work life, even interacting with coworkers and stuff too. So it's not just for teens, but um, um, why, why are we focusing on this. I think nothing makes my skin kind of crawl a little bit when I was in the school world, when I would get kids or in outpatient as well from a former therapist that they came to me and it was like, we'll make eye contact for five minutes. And it's like, I don't want to do that either. Or they will um, engage in back and forth conversation, like trying to get, you know, for three interactions, it's like, let's find goals or activities that are more vibrant and functional and meaningful um, for this type of kiddo. Cause if you're in a school, um, setting and you're working in the older grades, I mean, this is something a lot of the kids I think on your caseload would have, um, definitely in the autism population, this is helpful. Um, and then kind of built out this worksheet again, it's just to have as a resource to kind of, um, make a more salient way to go through this, like, okay, the child, you know, you could work on these all, just talking. You don't have to write anything if you didn't want to, but kind of talking about what's an I need statement. And those are, you know, okay, that's a self-advocacy um, statement because there are needs that people don't all, you know, kind of working on perspective taking. They may not know what you need. Everyone doesn't know what someone else needs in a situation. So just saying that can be really empowering for both the person you're working with, but also for them and the people they're trying to interact with. So how many communication barriers and um, missteps could we avoid if we're just a little more straightforward saying, I need to stand up when I'm taking, so I give some examples, you know, I need to stand up when I'm taking a test. That's not something someone who doesn't do that would know about you. So here's a way you can communicate that. It's not rude, it's not mean, it's advocating for yourself. Um, the I can statements really came from the, and how you would work with your client on them is like, what are things people might think it's crazy that you can do, but instead of seeing them as something weird or strange or not normal, it's pretty cool if you say, I can do this. And you're taking, you're kind of teaching your um, client or patient to say like, 
that's really cool that I can do that. I can do it because a lot of people cannot do these things. Um, and again, the whole thread of this is really through that autism, you know, my work in the autism community, I worked with older kids. And so, um, you know, I had kids that could do these crazy, they felt so random, but then it's like, take back the power away from somebody saying that that's a weird or negative thing by saying, well, I can do that, you know? So um, the I wish statements, I think that's, those were ones I was thinking of, like, again, reframing how someone may perceive their, their missteps in communication and making them taking back the control as the, the, the teenager to say, I wish people just knew I don't make eye contact because it makes me uncomfortable, but Hey, I'm still listening. Um, and you know, I wish people knew I wanted to be their friends. I just don't always know how to follow the exact way that everyone else around me makes friends. Um, or, and it's just a good avenue to talk about other things they might struggle with, with like executive functioning skills, like, Hey, I can rearrange my library at home to be all color and alphabetized, but then I can't get my homework done because I can't go to my planner and put it in the right place and remember. So um, sort of those I wish statements of things they hope they could do in the future with the skills that they have. And really the whole idea of the resources to be strength-based, strength not deficit-based. And I think, unfortunately, that's a lot of um, the goal-targeting activities in certain populations for neurodiverse individuals, especially teenagers. We know they're struggling, you know, with COVID and all the things. Being a teen is rough. So just using these, um, this worksheet as um, a way to start those conversations, but also kind of make it measurable, kind of make it a way that you feel like, okay, I can write about this in my treatment note. I could say worked on self-advocacy statements and was able, you know, the patient was able to generate three three out of five with minimal prompting. You know, it's easy to toggle into that language because that can feel really overwhelming when you have these more abstract goals that aren't like, okay, they said S sound 10 times, check. You know, this is kind of gives you a way to think through that. Um, and then the other two are just, it's hard for me. And definitely, I hope, like what it, does anyone, I feel like a lot of times when a child struggles in school or struggles in a setting or struggles with social communication, we don't, we forget to ask them like, what do you hope? What do you want to do in the future? Instead of assuming that we're kind of just trying to get them from point A to point B. It's like, what, what is their big picture goal and how can we work back to help them through our work with them? So anyways, yeah, <laughs> easy resource. <laughs> I really like this resource, Heidi. I can think of um, some little ones. I've used this with already. Yeah. And it, in TBI, Acute Rehab, and I can think of one of um, someone from my practice I would use this with. He kind of got lost a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say lost, but that's the way uh, his, his mom describes it uh, post-COVID. So, you know, with the um, hybrid remote and the classroom hybrid remote, he's more of the shy kid. And then on top of it with like, you know, um, some ADHD involvement. And I can totally see him using this to help him become uh, more verbal in the classroom um, and with heightening his social skills. I really like this, I'm gonna use it. Thank you. Uh, this is awesome, it's really versatile. I love that you can just kind of go in different directions with it. And it also might be an opportunity to like tie in emotional vocabulary, which I think is an important part of our job. Um, I feel like even neurotypical adults have a hard time identifying what they're feeling and labeling emotions and um, just verbalizing that. So I feel like um, tying that into like kind of the feelings category, I guess, with some of these statements, I think would be a great way to use it too. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Heidi. We will move on to our final new resource for the month. This is written by Tasanya and it is called Disfluency Strategies for the Classroom. Uh, so bullying is a big thing that a lot of uh, children experience and children who have varied learning styles or who come with their beautiful variations, <clears throat> excuse me, um, they experience this a lot. So um, this is one of those resources that I, I 
did thinking of that population as well and thinking about some mm -hmm. of the students I've worked with or patients who were disfluent and, um, and how they kind of became uh, isolated because they didn't speak up in the classroom and didn't have anyone to provide them the support in the classroom not necessarily because there wasn't anyone to, but because they didn't know how to do it. So this resource would be for like, it can be for educators, it could be for therapists, it could be for parents, and even for uh, older, some of our older children who are able to understand how they use this. And I use it um, to, as a guideline, just as a guideline. And, um, and if I knew, let's say I, I was the treating uh, clinician for a child who I knew was disfluent, and um, I wanted to help to create a environment, a classroom environment that um, would support their language and support their academic world. I would use this as uh, like a goal, uh, a bank of ideas for making that happen. I also think about the parents a lot because sometimes in the classroom setting, the parents have, the teachers, excuse me, have to think about 20 something students. So um, as a parent, you wanna be your child's advocate. So this is a way that you can use it as well. And um, simply by printing it and providing it to your child's educator, whether it be the, uh, the therapist in the school or if it, it might be the gym teacher, uh, because we'd be surprised um, sometimes the, the classroom or the school-based um, environments that children really feel isolated from because they just don't know how um, to uh, communicate or because they are, uh, anticipate, <clears throat> they anticipate their disfluency. So instead of, of, um, of being communicative with their fellow students, they just shut down and say nothing. So in short, I would, um, I would use this, I, if I was a SLP in the classroom setting, in a school setting, excuse me, I would provide it to the principal or the dean and I would have them disperse it to various teachers, just as something that they could either send home to the parents or as something that the teachers can use as a resource for um, knowing how to provide that support in the classroom. Because I, I can, I'm assuming, but I can guarantee that most schools have children who are disfluent in some form or the other. Um, and um, I'd also just use it as a guideline as a teacher for, um, you know, many teachers want to know what they can do and they just don't know what to do. So I'd use it um, as an idea um, to get some ideas, excuse me, of how I could use it to help my student to um, make the best of the academic day. Thanks. Yeah, and for those of you who are um, listening via podcast, this has like basically a bullet point list of very straightforward, concrete strategies from, you know, give your student full your full attention when they're speaking, do not deprive them of your eye contact or give them awkward body language if disfluent speech occurs, do not finish your set student sentences for them. So a whole page of those types of strategies. Yeah, and, oh, go ahead. Oh, okay, one last thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as SOPs, we, we tend to know, or we most of us know that we wouldn't tell a child to slow down or stop and start again. But it's a common thing that uh, families do when they're trying to help uh, their child. Uh, teachers do it. I've seen it um, where they will say, okay, you know, slow down or start again. And it's, it's meant, it's with good intention, but it, it's, um, it's not beneficial to the student at all. So it's just like Megan mentioned, it's just a list of, um, of ideas of, of or strategies that you could use or implement. And it doesn't have to be in a school setting. It could just be in general. I think I was thinking of a cool way to use it too. It'd be like, I remember when I worked in the schools, like you don't, you have like seconds with teachers, you know, everyone, is, it's a tight turnaround. And so this is a nice thing, like you're saying to just leave somewhere, be like, Hey, look at this. You know, when you have a second, I'm here to answer questions or also like finding really um, good ways to compliment, you know, kind of say to the teacher, like, I really liked how mm -hmm. you didn't interrupt that student when they were, I noticed that you did that to try to make it you know, show them you're already doing some of these things. Um, and then maybe that's an avenue to have the harder conversation about like, 
hey, let's try the, like, I really like the one um, in the first column there where it's like, give kids a second to write their answers out before you just start calling everybody's name out. So, you know, little things like that, maybe the harder ones to implement, you can sort of start by, hey, you did a really good job of this other thing. Like, thanks for reading that resource I left you or something, um, things like that. You know, it's hard. I Like I said, uh, I know teachers have to manage a classroom full of students with varied needs. So one of the strategies was to have like a general approach with class, classroom activities. So for example, rather than only applying that to one student, you know, you just make it something that you do a general principle for the classroom. Right. And, um, Kate Hawkins, another writer who's not on the show, wrote um, an article snapshot about um, non-traditional fluency program developed for the public school setting. And this was published by Berkowitz et al. It was published in 1994, so it's an older article. Um, but I think it's one of those sort of landmark articles where it withstands the tests of time. And basically the study was set up where they brought, they had an after-school program for students um, to, to address fluency disorders. And then they also brought the parents in for group therapy or within a group setting after school. And sometimes that would happen in tandem with individual therapy. And the focus of what they were talking about in these group settings was really unearthing negative feelings and misperceptions about stuttering before addressing any kind of behavioral modifications. Um, and then they just noted that effective behavioral modification options supported by the research include rate modification, volume modification, ease of vocal onset and intonation patterns. And some of that might've changed through the research since 1994, but the key, takeaway from this paper um, is really if you, if you are in a school setting and you have the capacity to consider bringing the parents in for a group setting, um, you can really target key messaging um, to relate to students and their parents, um, including the concept that children are still whole people, um, even though they stutter at times. And it's important that students and their parents do not view, view them as faulty or less than someone who is fluent. And I think this is important because I was Googling last night, like if I was a parent, where would I be going for resources? And I found that one website that was like written by this woman who, who started off introducing herself. She's like, I am not a speech therapist, but I spend a lot of time with kids who have speech sound disorders. And one of the recommendations that she had was using marbles in the mouth. Like that's still a thing that is out there on the internet and parents are reading this. And so if you have the option, the opportunity or resources to get parents into therapy in a group setting after school, um, you could use this article as a way, kind of a jumping off point to get that started. All right, so those are all of our new resources and we're going to wrap up this episode with our case study. So again, this is a chance for us to just talk about different clinical ideas and perspectives, as well as talk about resources from the Therapy Insights Library that we, we would apply for this case study. So this month we're talking about a 13-year-old male with phonological disorder specific to errors with post-vocalic R. Errors occur at the word, phrase, sentence, and conversation level, but he is stimulable for post-vocalic R in isolation. He has been in therapy both in the clinic and in school for almost eight years, but he has had many different therapists. He and his parents demonstrate good home carryover and he is motivated. It was recently discovered that he appears to have a restricted posterior lingual frenulum, but it is uncertain if this is affecting speech errors. So we will start with Bailey. Bailey, if you want to just tell us about the resource that you chose and any clinical thoughts or perspectives you have about this case. Yes. Um, so this resource I love. Um, really, it's it's a warm up, and I I've used this with um, children of all for different ages. Those who are, um, oh, for those who are listening on the podcast, it's called Speech Activity Vocalic R Warm Up. Can you just describe it really quick? 
Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so as she said, it's a warm up, and basically it's a visual, and it has um, postvocalic R, so er, or R, I, or air, and ear, and they're um, in different colors. And so they're, um, the sound is in a box, and then there's an arrow going um, to the other side of the page. And um, the reason, or the way I use it, is I will kind of use this for elongation practice. So once we get a nice production of um, the R in isolation with the vowel, then I'll have them usually run their finger across the arrow and sustain that R sound, um, making sure it's it's accurate, um, but kind of just practicing um, it in isolation before moving to words or phrases or sentences. And I feel like it helps them build more awareness of what their articulators are doing and kind of like holding it for a while. I, I know a lot of SLPs do that elongation practice. Um, so I like to use this at the beginning of sessions for a quick warm up to make sure we do have that sound accurately. Um, and like I said, with young clients or older clients. Um, so that, that's how I would use this resource. Great. Thank you. And Tasanya, you selected techniques for achieving the R sound. Can you tell us about this resource? Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So this resource has a activity attached to it with a, a puppet and it's an oral component to it. And um, there are four steps and some tips uh, as well on the resource. And the reason why I selected this and why I think that this is a good resource is because sometimes children who have difficulty with uh, producing the R sounds, it's because of their lingual placement. Uh, and with the puppet, um, sometimes just having a visual uh, as a method of feedback has been helpful in my practice. I've seen that. Uh, so that's why I like this one. And um, in the resource, there's some ideas on how to keep it fun um, and to keep uh, the child motivated because we know that R is a difficult, it's one of those difficult sounds in therapy. And I know um, no matter what the age is, sometimes it can be a little discouraging for the child when they're working on this particular sound. Um, so um, it talks about um, ways to make it fun, also on how we work on building awareness first. Sometimes it's a matter of just awareness of placement, awareness of what the sound should sound like, awareness of when they're when it's being pronounced correctly or incorrectly. So that's what this resource is about. And uh, that's why I picked this one. Uh, and did you, as far as um, the situation, do you want me to wait until after with the... Um, yeah, let's see that. We'll kind of have a conversation after okay. about this resource. Or she has got a couple of resources. So the first one is how we produce R in English. You want to talk about this resource, maybe? So this resource, yeah, how we produce R in English. It has a really nice. Uh, I don't want to say a skull, but like a facial draw, like a cut out a lateral. Yeah, lateral view. No, yeah, lateral view of the, of someone and kind of shows you the two tongue positions for retroflexed R and bunched R. And kind of like um, we were just saying, I think a lot of times people just, you know, we want them to understand where their tongue is or isn't or should or shouldn't be to make this sound. So it's just a really nice drawing. It could definitely be something you even just had up in your, you know, if you had your own outpatient space, I'm sure tons of people could just look at it and get something from it. So it's a super visual, not a lot of instructions are on it, um, but kind of says when you're using the bunch star, the tongue tip is down and retroflex, the tongue tip is up and kind of gives you a, a little picture. So I just think that's a nice resource. Um, to have pretty handy, no matter what the R situation. Um, and then the other one I picked, it's called Tongue Tie. Um, and this resource is a little bit more geared towards uh, the babies. I mean, it's talking about um, some babies are born with, but it would still apply. I mean, there's kids we've all met that have mm -hmm. made it quite far in life with maybe a, it has the four classes of tongue tie, one, two, three, and four, and kind of shows you um, where they are uh, again, I think just the pictures are valuable enough because you're kind of talking about the posterior tongue tie in the case study. Um, so that's not one that's really pictured here, but again, having an idea of uh, what that is to have an educated discussion with the child or the family and, you know, any other relevant providers. So again, just some more um, things to look at that might help you process what's going on for this kiddo. 
And Megan, I know we're trying to wrap up um, the, the resource that Heidi was just talking about. I like mm-hmm. that the um, the visuals are a little more realistic. They're not just like a cartoon tongue. So I like that. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, what thoughts do you have about the case study? Is this open for anybody? Any of us? <laughs> oh, yeah. So the restricted lingual frenulum, I don't know. It's hard hard to say if that would be affecting his speech. Um, I don't know. What, what do you guys think, Heidi and Tasanya? Well, okay. Well, there's a few things. Uh, he's 13. He's yeah. had therapy for eight years. There's yeah. carryover in the home setting. Of course, it could just be that he hasn't acquired it yet, but there is that potential for it to be impacting his ability to grasp it. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't see why I would say that I would have, I would, if it was me working with this child, um, I would recommend that the family source specialist to rule that out as a component uh, because I'm eight years is a long time. Good carryover, the child's motivated. Um, I would rule it out. I would, I would recommend they rule it out. I agree. I think the time that you're talking about in the reported carryover means that people have made a good faith effort. I mean, a lot of different therapists. So who knows um, what you'd want to do. I mean, I think when I get situations like this, yeah, I normally would also refer out, but say like, let's work for like three or four weeks, kind of see if we get somewhere. If not, you know, these are the other options. Uh, I think also to kind of, I think only because it's fresh in my mind from just having done it. I mean, if it's at a point where there's not something else that they can do about it, sort of helping the 13 year old get to a point of accepting that like, maybe this is just how it's going to be. And like, how can I, you know, who's driving the, the need or urge to correct it for lack of a better word. I mean, are you able, are you intelligible? Okay, cool. You know, could you just, how could you use your own um, self-advocacy to kind of talk through it in scenarios in the time between now and maybe when we solve it or now and when we realize there's not really something to be to be solved that's kind of just how it's going to be so I like that point Heidi um especially because it's kind of like voice to me voice Mm -hmm. disorders I treat like that too if it's not an issue and resonance if it's not an issue to you it's not if it's not an issue culturally then why treat it um however I always think about bullying and like let's be real kids are mean Mm-hmm. And that impacts many times quality of life. It impacts like well-being and functioning. So all of that comes to the table. And it's so funny because last week I had, um, I worked with a child with just this case. I did an evaluation. And the first question that parents ask is, what do you think? Should I have it clipped? And I'm like, well, it's not up to me, you know, and I'll explain, you know, I'll, just like we just did today. You know, we'd have that kind of discussion. And one of the things that many families don't realize is I, I'll tell them many times it's hereditary. So um, do you know there's anyone on either side? If they do know, um, depending on the birth, uh, on the child's uh, family's uh, situation, do you know if anyone has it? And many times one of the parents or uh, may have had it. Um, and that helps because they realize they can look at how that parent dealt with it. And if that parent um, is able to communicate and were they able to communicate effectively or, or sufficiently, were they able to manage eating fine without clipping it? And that helps a lot of families with deciding what they want to do. I think that's a really good point. And I think the only other thing I would add to this whole thing is also having that discussion beforehand or like during before you refer out or they do get potentially their tongue clipped is saying like, this may not like solve it just so, you know, setting Mm -hmm. expectations appropriately because it's easy. Mm -hmm. I think I've met a couple of families that are popping in my head that thought this was going to like solve this and like some other problem. And it's like, I mean, it could, but we, it's not maybe a silver bullet, you know, maybe have that expectation that this could help some, but there may be other, like you're saying hereditary or just it, it, you cannot get to the point where your R sounds like everyone else's and that's, yeah. you know, kind of managing expectations around tongue ties, especially in the older kids where you're like, Oh, you know, right. you either way. <laughs> yeah. I think families appreciate the transparency and just like laying it all out right there, especially when they've been in therapy for so long and who, who knows what they've been told over the years by different people. So 
And the problems that come after, like you said, or that can come after because they've been compensating all these right. years. Right. So now you clip it and then sometimes it, it turns into a whole nother disaster. Right. So um, that's a good point. Yeah, interesting stuff. Great. Thank you guys. And that I believe wraps up our first show. So thank you. Um, like I said, if you want instant access to all the resources that we talked about today and hundreds more, you can go to therapyinsights.com. If you're already subscribed to the access pass, you already have instant access. We're going to put all links in the show notes on YouTube and on the podcast platform. So you can easily find links to all of the resources that we talked about today. If you have any questions for the team, um, and that could be a question related to what resource would you use for this particular case? Or do you have any clinical thoughts or perspectives on this other type of case study? We will happily um, take those questions. You can contact, contact us at support at therapyinsights.com. And if you're a member, be sure to vote on what we create next. And we will be back on April 1st with a whole new episode. So we will see you then. And in the meantime, thanks to all the therapists out there for making therapy functional, person-centered, empowering, and informed. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.